Now I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, and we're going to look uh, this morning at John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Um, I have to tell you that this is one of those passages in the Bible that is just rich with great information about how to live the Christian life. And so, uh, we want to kind of dig into it in depth. It'll only be six verses, but I don't know if you know this, but the, the word transformation is a big word in our culture these days. Everybody seems to be talking about, about transformation. For instance, on cable news channels, you will see people talking about transformed bodies. Like they, one ad promises, I, I went from overweight to slim and trim in 16 weeks. I went from overweight to trim in 16 days, somebody else will say. It's all about transformation, but it's transformation with a twist. It's transformation that is quick, painless, and easy. You've seen those ads on on cable TV, I'm sure you've seen them. Or uh, on YouTube, you'll see ads that pop up promising transformed nights of sleep. If you just take this all-natural pill, or if you take this revolutionary new pillow, you will have a transformed night of sleep. I mean, who, who of us doesn't want a transformed night of sleep, right? We'd love to have that. And this is quick, easy, and painless. Just buy this product, and this will happen to you. Or you see print-based ads all over suggesting that the very essence of your masculinity or the very essence of your femininity is all wrapped up in the kind of car that you drive. If you want to be a real man, you drive this kind of car. If you want to be a really in-touch female in the work environment, you, you drive this kind of car. One purchase will transform your identity from one thing another. Transformation is a hugely trending topic in our culture, but it's transformation with a twist. It's transformation that is quick, easy, and painless. I think most of us know that that doesn't happen. Transformation takes time. And I want you to think about it from the standpoint of a monarch butterfly. I've used this illustration before, but I want to kind of take a different idea on this. This is how a monarch butterfly begins, a tiny little egg. That egg then transforms, and it doesn't transform, it kind of goes into this little larva. This little larva has none of the coloring of a monarch butterfly yet, but in time that comes, and here's the caterpillar, and it looks like it's got the colors of a monarch butterfly, but I can't see how that thing could fly. And then it hangs from a tree, and it begins to develop this thing called the chrysalis from cells that it already has in its body, and then you have this beautiful, beautiful chrysalis, which is jade green, and it has a little crown around the top, hence the word monarch butterfly. And then, amazingly, that chrysalis uh, turns transparent, and you see what has been happening on the inside. A transformative thing has been taking place on the inside, and then it breaks out of the chrysalis, but those wings can't fly yet. You've got a lot of, lot of uh, well, it's blood, actually, in the abdomen that it's got to squeeze into those wings, 
And it does so, and then it spreads its wings, and those wings harden in the sun, and pretty soon it's now flying with a whole lot of other monarch butterflies. That transformation takes a long time, and it's only in stage five that that monarch butterfly is truly free. But guess how many weeks the monarch butterfly spends in the cocoon? It lives for about eight weeks. It spends two weeks in the cocoon, approximately. Wow, that's a significantly long part of its lifespan cooped up in a cocoon. Maybe one-fourth of its whole life is spent in a cocoon. And what's going on inside of that cocoon? It's dark, it's boring, it's silent. So imagine a caterpillar in its cocoon, turning on the TV, and hearing these words. Caterpillar is, I'll go back to this, this slide here, hearing these words. If you, j we've got a new product, it's called Cocoon Away. <laughs> if you will just buy this product, you can leave your cocoon weeks early. You can burst out of your cocoon in half the time. Hey, Mike the Monarch did it. Mike, tell us, how did Cocoon Away work for you? Oh, it was amazing. I was so bored. I was so unhappy. It was so dark in there, so quiet in there. And now I'm able to burst out of that and, and I, can, I can be free. It doesn't happen. Transformation takes place over a long time. If you try to short-circuit the chrysalis process, and I've talked to people who were just really mean people who saw a chrysalis, and they tried to break it open early, and the butterfly dies. You can't short-circuit the transformation process. And as Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the Christian life, he is describing a kind of transformation that goes down deep and is genuinely effective. And that transformation is called abiding in Christ. It's called abiding in Christ. So we want to look at what he says and then how it applies to us. And I'm going to, I'm going to deconstruct this for you in a way that I, I hope will help you really understand it so you can weave it into your life. The word picture that he gives to us is a word picture about abiding through the ministry that Jesus has literally by your side. It's a ministry that Jesus has moment by moment as he is near you, next to you, and in you. So it begins in chapter 14. Jesus says, arise, let us go from here. They have been in the upper room. And in the upper room, they've been enjoying a uh, Passover meal, which turned into the Last Supper, which turned into the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate here at Grace uh, once a month, if not more. And uh, some pretty amazing things happened, but it was a very tense mood up there in the upper room. I want you to th think about the kind of things that took place in the upper room. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. That was very uncomfortable for them because they should have been doing that, and here the master's doing it. He instituted the Lord's Supper. That was exciting. But then in a serious tone, he said, Judas, what you do, do very quickly. That was a little sobering. And then he urged his disciples to stop fighting over who would be the greatest. And then he said to Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. So it's, it's like a spiritual high, and yet it is filled with conflict and tension. So they, they leave that upper room 
to go to Gethsemane. They walk down the stairs, they go off into the city. That city is brightened by the full moon. They walk through the city, they walk to the eastern gate of the city, they exit the city, they walk down the hill to the Kidron Valley. Well, there's the Kidron Valley right there. And as they're walking across the Kidron Valley, they come upon a small vineyard. Now, I will tell you that the cash crops in Israel were olives, figs, and grapes. And if ever there was a free plot of land anywhere, somebody was building a vineyard. And there's a little vineyard there in the Kidron Valley. And Jesus looks at the vines. Maybe he picks up a little part of the grapevine. And he says these words, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. So let, let's deconstruct this a little bit. This is the final I am statement in the Gospel of John. You remember that there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Those seven I am statements are statements about his deity. But it's more than that. When God gave his name to Moses in Exodus 3.15, he gave the name I am. And that name means that God is the self-existent one. God is the source of all existence. God is the promise maker and the promise keeper. But it means more than that. Because in that name I am, God was saying to Moses, Moses, I am going to be with you practically. I am going to be empowering you practically. I'm going to be ministering to you practically as you go to Egypt and help free my people. I am refers to the practical ministries of God. It means other things, but in part it means that. And so Jesus has seven I am statements describing the practical supernatural ministries that he gives to his, his people. So Jesus' practical ministry in the vine is amazing. What is that ministry? That ministry is the delivery of supernatural life. I am the true vine means I am the one who gives you supernatural life day by day, moment by moment. Here's why. The main trunk of the grapevine is, is that right there. It's the, it's the trunk that's cultivated over many, many years. Some of these grapevines would be decades old. It's that big trunk that grows up about waist high and ends in a big fat gnarl. And that gnarl, that fist, that's the vine. And what happens is that that gnarl at the center is the place from which those green tender shoots begin to grow, those, those branches. So if you look at that picture, Jesus would be the vine coming up out of the ground, that trunk that ends up in that gnarly fist there. And in the picture, we would be those branches that come out of that, of that gnarl. Now, most of, I, don't, I don't know if any of you grow grapes, but most of us don't grow grapes, so we wouldn't ordinarily know this unless we knew a little bit about, about, the, about the background. So the grapevine begins with that little bud that comes out of, of, the, of the vine. And that little bud then 
produces those vine branches, those brine, they're just very tender, uh, very weak little branches that, that unless they were pinned up, would drift down onto, onto the, the ground. So um, if we're going to be able to produce fruit, we need a lot of help because left to ourselves, we're not going to produce any fruit from those kinds of branches. So Jesus is the vine. Uh, Jesus is the vine, and we're the branches. Well, I'll say more about the branches in a second, but the Father is the vine dresser. In other words, the Father is the one who goes throughout the entire vineyard, snipping and pruning and managing our life, that life on the vine. And notice the double image of God. He is both Father and vine dresser. Now, that is a very significant designation for God. Because the image that the disciples would have had of Father was new to them. We think about God as Father. We, we've heard that language. That was brand new to the disciples. When they're envisioning God as Father, they're envisioning Him as being kind and a good leader and good, having our best interests in mind. When you get the image of the vine dresser, you get the image of somebody who is so expert in pruning the vines that he knows exactly which place to prune and why. He is filled with wisdom because he's so experienced in pruning. It's a double image of God that would powerfully indicate the love of the Father and His wisdom in growing us and building us. Now, the vine dresser had to be wise because being a vine gardener is, was and is the most complicated form of agriculture. Grapes only grow on branches that are a year old. In year one, the gardener's got to cultivate that little, that, that little branch, setting it up for health, setting it up for, for growth. And then in year two, the branch will produce the flowers, and those flowers will produce a cluster of grapes. Therefore, the farmer always has to remember, this is what happened last year so that now I can do what I need to do this year. There's a lot of complicated wisdom that the vine dresser has to have. Once a branch is ready to produce fruit, he has to carefully choose which buds to prune and which buds to leave. He snips the buds that need pruning, and the goal is to maximize the production of fruit on a particular branch. You don't want too much fruit on a particular branch. You don't want too little fruit on a particular branch. It's the Goldilocks effect. You want just the right amount. And the father, the vine dresser, knows exactly how that works. So I want you to imagine, there's a picture up on the screen, but I want you to imagine a vine dresser moving throughout his vineyard. What's his mood? What's his facial expression? Is he going, oh, I hate this job, snip, snip, snip. Oh, I, don't, I don't care about all this stuff. This is so hard to do, so frustrating. Is that his mood? No, no. The vine dresser delights in his craft. The vine dresser inspects every little detail. Snip here. Nope, that's good right there. Snip here. I think, think we're good right here. Oh, I'm not sure. Okay, I'm going to snip here. There's, he, is, he loves his vines. He loves his branches. He knows the more time he spends in the vineyard, the better the, 
the grape harvest, the better the wine harvest, the better it's going to be at Passover and at all the holidays. He loves what he does. And this is a, a great picture about how the Father moves through your life. Some of you probably envision the Father sometimes as, as being the clumsy axeman of your life. He's really through your life, ugh, lop. I hate that about her. Boom. Can't stand that. I'm going I'm to break that right over my knee here. And your view of God is one of, a, of an angry God who is wanting to be vindictive because you failed to measure up. That is not the heart of the Father at all. The heart of the Father is that He is Father and vine dresser. He knows how to lead and manage your, your life. So how does the Father do this? Here we're digging a little, a little bit more deeply into things. There are two ministries of the Father. The first ministry is in John 15, verse 2, and now we have a controversy. Most Bibles will say, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The Greek word for take away is the word iro. Iro means either to take away or it means to lift up. Now, because many of the early Reformation English Bible translators did not know about grape farming, most of the early English Bibles translated Iro to take away. However, in light of, you know, historical research, a lot of people are saying, oh, it's really not the best translation because that's not what happens in agriculture, particularly the production of vines. When a little branch is trending down and begins to move down toward the ground, you don't go, ah, lop that baby off. What you do is you lift it up. So here's how, here's how it worked. You see the red line going across the top. That red line is the trellis. And these little great branches would droop down. They have no strength in themselves. They would droop down. And so what the, what the grape farmer would do is lift up that branch and attach the branch to the trellis so that progressively you have branches coming out of the grapevine and upon those branches, uh, the, the, those trunks with those branches, uh, those, new, those new branches would, would form. And today what happens is that they get attached to a wire, a wire trellis. In the ancient world it was a different, different material, obviously. So the way I would translate this based upon what happens in, in agriculture and in, and in life is what, what happens is every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, he lifts that branch up to the trellis, tying that branch off. So that branch now has some structure and that branch can now begin to bear fruit. That's what God does in your life. You don't have the strength in yourself at times to weather the storms of life. Left to yourself, you're going to trend right down there into the dirt, into the grime of life. So the Father doesn't go, bad Christian, yank, break, take you away. No, what He does, He says, okay, here's a, a branch that's going to bear fruit. I'm going I'm to carefully lift that branch up. I'm going to tie that branch onto the trellis so that branch is able to bear fruit. So this is the lifting up ministry of the Father. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, 
He lifts it up. Now, the Father has another ministry, and that, that ministry is, uh, that next ministry is the pruning ministry. So, going, going back to this, um, this, this passage, every branch um, in me that does, not, that, that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. If you leave a branch unattended, that branch will generally produce a whole mess of fruit, right? It'll produce fruit everywhere. And you, you, don't, you, don't want, you don't want that because those grapes are low-quality grapes. They don't taste quite right. They don't feel quite right on your mouth. They don't produce the right kind of, of wine. They crowd each other out. So the gardener wisely prunes the less productive buds, concentrating the energy of the vine into the most productive buds. And he knows exactly what kind of pruning creates the best kind of wine. Some wines might, I'm, using, I'm contextualizing this now to our day, but some kinds of wine produ buds produce the better kind of Chardonnay. Others produce the better kind of Cabernet Bourguignon, for, for instance. But he knows how to prune based upon the kind of fruit that he wants to have in, in that person's life. God does the same thing in your life. He prunes you. He prunes you. Does that feel good? No does not feel good. It does not feel good. But he prunes you to produce an effect. So let me give you an example for me. One day, when I was in probably eighth grade, I, was, I grabbed a Sports Illustrated out of my dad's, out of the mailbox. I took it up to my room. I read through my... I loved Sports Illustrated. Loved it. I saw in the Sports Illustrated an article about a family that was very, very involved in sports and athletics. And I, I was at that point in my life. I looked at that article and I thought, that's what I want when I grow up. And it's funny that that would happen, but I mean, I looked at that and I thought, there's that family, that's what I want when I grow up. I, I want that kind of a family. I ripped that article out of the Sports Illustrated and I kept it for, I would think, five or six years. It was, that was like my, my, that's a weird thing for an eighth grader. But that's, God was doing something in, in my life. That vision continued in, in college. And I remember being in college and being introduced to a guy named Howard Hendricks who was talking about how Christian marriage works. I thought, wait, that's, that, that's the answer to that to that article that I, that I read. That's, that's, that's the answer. And so God was producing in me a vision for a family. And, um, oh man, did I need a lot of pruning. So then I got married. And God went through and he pruned, 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 pruned. And I, I can remember thinking, Okay, so maybe that vision that I had was just some random thing. And I, I thought, well, okay, so maybe, yeah. I mean, we, we, had, we had a good marriage, but here I said, good? It was a good with tentativeness. But you know, what God did in the pruning was He did something in my character, He did something in Cindy's character that was transformative for us. 
So much so that uh, in about 2006, uh, all four of our kids at some point independently of each other said, what's happened to you guys? <laughs> like, what's, what, what's going on in, in, your, in your, your marriage? What's going on in your marriage, in your life? And our vulnerability and authenticity about what's happening in our marriage was transformative to them to such an extent that they have made sacrifices for their family in ways that kind of take that legacy that God pruned us into and have now manifested that into the family. But I'm telling you, we got pruned big time. But what, what, right now, we're about ready to celebrate 40 years of marriage. Right now, what I say, oh my gosh, I wish we didn't go through that pruning. No, I'm happy for that pruning. Don't want to go through it again. But having gone through it, I'm not only happy for it, like I am ecstatically grateful that he pruned us into a place where that original vision that came from a seventh, eighth grader came into, came into a place of, of beauty. God produces transformation by pruning and by lifting up two ministries. They're complementary, they're different, but those ministries are, are very good. Now, notice something else about, about us. He says, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. What he's saying by this is, look, you are already believers in Christ. You are already clean. Jesus said the same thing about the guys who said, oh, don't, don't wash my feet. Jesus said, look, you're, you're, you're clean, but because you're involved in the world, you need regular foot washing. You're already clean positionally, but you need lifting up and pruning relationally so that you will grow. That's the setup. Now let's look at how Jesus tells us the transformation is going to happen. It's going to happen as we enter into a lifestyle of abiding in Christ. Here is the, here is the command, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I want to point out what the command is not. The command is not a command to bear fruit. It's not a command to grow. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a command to, to say, self, you're not, you're not bearing enough fruit. Self, bear fruit, bear fruit. And I'm, I'm going to push real hard. I'm going to push the fruit out. That, that's not what this command is all about. It's a, it's a, it's a relational command. A lot of people treat the Christian life that way. Like, man, I got to try super hard to do this because it's, 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 it's up to me. And if I don't do it, it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of people who've told me that that's what their church was all about. Their church was all about you got to be a better person morally. You got to do more good works. Better get after it. You got, you got to get after better character. I'm all for morality and better character and good works, but that's, that's not how this works. The way this works is that Jesus produces that through you as you abide in Him. So Jesus is commanding us by saying, abide in me. This is a wonderfully gentle command. It's a relational command. All right, time to talk about a dog now. 
do you think this dog wants to give up this toy? What, what's going to happen if I go to that dog and I try to pull the toy out of that dog's mouth? Tug of war. Good answer. Brilliant answer. Yeah, <clears throat> tug of war. So what happens when God moves toward us to prune us? I don't like the sharpness of those shears, Lord. What happens when he tries to lift us up out of the dirt? Like, I'm kind of doing my own thing. Seriously, do do you got to tie me off onto the trellis? And so this gentle command, what I'm learning about, this is not our dog, but but this is like the dog that we have. We've learned how to get get, get that toy out of a big, powerful German shepherd's mouth. You get right in front of him, and you grab both ends of it, and you don't pull it. You just start saying, this thing's mine. This thing's mine. Sit. I walk toward him. Sit. This thing's mine. And when he gives it to me the first time, I give him a treat. And we just over and over and over and over again. So he wants that toy, and I'm saying, Watson, it's mine. It's a gentle command, and he gives it up. Most of the time. (laughs) Most of the time. So this is a gentle command where Jesus says, I want you to abide in me. Just remain relationally close to me. It means living in his love. It means dwelling in his presence. It means relying on his power. It means voicing our trust. It's an invitation to fellowship with a resurrected Christ who is spiritually near you all the time. I'm trying try to think about some ways I could, I could illustrate this. It's, it's, like, it's like marriage. What would it be like if you got married and you never talked to your spouse? Like wedding day happens and then you just, you just never talk. That would be dysfunctionally weird. You know, in marriage, you, you live in an interactive fellowship with your spouse. It's like surgery. Imagine a resident doing a surgical procedure for the first time with a doctor who's done this procedure 5,000 times. And this new surgeon is interacting moment by moment with the lead surgeon in the case because it's the first time she's done it. That's what it's like to relate interactively with the risen Christ. Now comes the promise. The promise is, I will abide in you. It's clearly a promise. It's, It's a promise of presence. You abide in me, and I will abide in you. My, I will pour forth my relational presence. I will pour forth my relational power. Now, sometimes you'll abide in Christ and um, you, you will feel the presence of God. Sometimes you'll abide in Christ and you won't feel the presence of God. It doesn't matter whether you feel it or don't feel it. What you do is you reckon the fact that, Lord, I'm abiding in you right now. And whether I feel your power and your presence or whether I don't feel your power and presence, that's okay. That's okay. I'm going to go forward in the confidence that you and I are interacting relationally and that you are going to do something in my life. And indeed, he does. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The goal is bearing fruit. And I want you to notice in John chapter 15, it's possible to not bear fruit. That's verse 1. It's possible to bear fruit. That's also verse 1. It's possible to bear more fruit, that's verse 2. It's possible to bear much fruit, that's verse 5. 
it's possible to bear so much fruit that people know we're his disciples. Now, now, now notice, we're talking no fruit, some fruit, more fruit, much fruit, public fruit. No fruit, some fruit, more fruit, much fruit, public fruit. It all depends on your desire to abide. I abide regularly. I move toward the much fruit category. I abide not so much. I invite more pruning, <clears throat> but I also bear just a little bit of fruit. What Jesus is talking about is you learning how to abide in Christ so that He is the one who produces the fruit in your life. This is not try-hard Christianity. This is not becoming a better rules keeper. It's not becoming a better legalist. This is you being transformed by Jesus producing things in your life. Then we see the consequences of not abiding. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and they're burned. Wow. I mean, that almost sounds like the Father's casting people into hell, right? I mean, it sounds like he's the Father's saying to non-performing branches, hey, pal, you're not performing. I'm going to lop you off and I'm going to throw you into, into, the, into the fire. That's not what he's talking about. That, that, that would violate the entire sense of the path. We're talking about the Father who is the vine dresser, the Father who lovingly lifts up, the Father who, who graciously prunes. We're talking about people who are positionally clean because we are, we are in Christ. Jesus is not talking about hell. He's talking about waste. And what He's saying is it's possible to live life being oblivious to the spiritual presence of Jesus not encountering a connection with the living God and just living a wasted life. You can be a, su a successful banker, but if you don't abide in Jesus, it's not a spiritual work. You can be a successful attorney. If you don't abide in Jesus, you can do good things as an attorney, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a wasted work. You can be a great singer if you don't abide in, in Christ. It's, it's not an eternal kind of work. You can be a conscientious mother or father. That's a great thing to be a conscientious mother or father. But if you're not abiding in Christ, it's not an eternal kind of a work. You can be a great pastor, elder, small group leader, all-around good churchman or churchwoman. But if you're not abiding in Christ, it's, it's not an eternal kind of a work. And so the, so the challenge is that we abide in Christ and not live a wasted life. So here, here's the, the big picture. God has set us up for transformation. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. God the Father is the vine dresser. God the Father lifts us up and prunes us back. But we have one role, and that role is to abide. And the result is we bear fruit, and that fruit gives us the potential to change the world because the world will know that we're His disciples as they see the fruit that we bear. Now, briefly, some takeaways. Four ideas for encountering transformation. The first takeaway is remember the overall supernatural worldview. This is not about you saying, okay, I'm going to follow the rules more assiduously. I'm going to be a better rules keeper. I'm going to be a better legalist. Man, I'm going to try really hard to be a much better Christian. That's not at all what this is about. This is about you living in a supernatural worldview. 
where the resurrected Jesus is with you and in you and you're responding to his supernatural presence. Does, does that excite you? That excites me. The second takeaway is visualize the ministries of the Father and the Son. Look, you know, we, as I said before, you know, we, we can use biblical words and we're so familiar with them that we don't pause to think about them. When Jesus says, our Father who is in heaven, remember, that word heavens is in the plural, and the heavens he's talking about is the invisible spiritual space around you. Remember, remember the, the wise men, remember the, the shepherds and the sky being torn back and the angels saying glory to God? That's the worldview you live in. You can't see it with your naked eyes, but you can see it with the eyes of faith. So visualize the ministries of the Father and Son. Jesus is, is near you. It's not like heaven is between Jupiter and the Andromeda galaxy. Not like that. It's not like that. Heaven, that. Heaven's, the way this is described in the plural, is the dimension of spiritual space around you where Jesus is near you. So our Father who art in heaven means our Father who is very, very near. So the, visualizing the ministries of Father and Son means you, you sense their nearness, you visualize their nearness, and you celebrate that nearness. Lord, you're near. You're here. <clears throat> Next thing is stop trying to produce fruit on your own. You can't do it. Look, I'm all for character development. You can do character development where you develop the character of wisdom. You develop the character of maturity and love. And so, look, character development is a great thing. This is something else. This is the resurrected Christ producing something inside you spiritually that you can't produce on your own. So don't try to do it on your own. Abide in Him. And a final thing. The health, it's, it's healthy to have a holy fear of a wasted life. It really is. It, it really is. This is, comes from Jeremiah. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. That's like Jesus saying, um, if you don't abide, you know, the branch is taken and it's thrown into the fire and burned. It is possible to live a life that's wasted. Now, I've talked to people who've lived amazingly exciting lives that are wasted. And others who live what could seem like to be a very common, ordinary life that's rich rich with meaning. It all goes back to abiding in Christ. How do you get transformed? Is it quick, easy, and painless? No, nope. no. Nope. The way you get transformed is by abiding in Christ. Let's stand for our closing prayer, and we have an elder who's going to pray for us. Terry, Terry Christian is going to pray for us. Well, I hope you're blessed just by the illustration of the Word of God this morning. So thank you for being here. Uh, just a reminder afterwards, if you're in need of prayer, please feel free to come forward prayer at the end of the service. Would you join me 
and praying. Father, we thank you for carefully tending our lives, for never forsaking us. Thank you for transforming us. We ask, O Lord, that you awaken us to your living presence in us. Help us be aware of your spirit, Lord. We thank you. We ask you to lead us by your spirit. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have a great day.